Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Galatians 4, Galatians 4. We're going to continue here for a few more weeks with uh, the life of Paul. Remember that Paul and Barnabas have planted multiple churches in the regions of Galatia between about 45 and 48 BC. So they spent a couple years in that region, modern day Turkey. They left to go back home to uh, Antioch in Syria, about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. And while they were gone, Jews from Jerusalem came to these churches. There were four or five churches in the Galatian region, and they began to teach false doctrine. Paul had taught the Galatian believers that the only way to be saved was through grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. And these false teachers from Jerusalem came, and they essentially told these Galatian believers that Paul was a liar. They said, you are not saved by grace alone, through faith alone. Faith alone in Christ alone is not enough. You have to add human works in addition to Christ's work. And the Galatian believers are beginning to believe these lies. And about 49 AD, a couple years after Paul had left, he wrote this letter to the Galatians to do a couple things. Well, number one, to defend his apostleship because they were basically saying you shouldn't listen to Paul because he's not a legitimate apostle. I mean, he didn't walk with Jesus. He wasn't one of the twelve so Paul's got to defend his legitimate apostleship in order to uh, bring his credentials to bear. And then he wants to define what the gospel is. And the whole book of Galatians is a defense of salvation through grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, as opposed to human works. And Paul basically says, look, you were saved by grace through faith. I was saved by grace through faith. The law didn't save any of us. We, none of us kept the law in the first place. Number two, the law was never designed to save anybody in the first place. The purpose of the law was to set God's holy standard in front of you so that you would understand that you can't keep it and that you need a savior because none of us can live up to a hundred percent righteousness that the law conveyed. Now, Paul is pointing out in today's lesson the absolute foolishness of going back, having been saved, having walked with Jesus, having your heavenly uh, future assured by grace through faith. Why would you go back and trust in the things that couldn't save you in the first place? So if you could pick up the narrative in Galatians 4 verse 8. However, at that time, when you did not know God, he's talking about before you met Jesus Christ, you were slaves to those which by nature were no gods. Verse 9, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. Here's the principle. Christ set us free from sin to have a relationship with God. Christ set us free from sin to have a relationship with God. 
don't go back into slavery again. Before salvation, every one of us were all slaves to sin. The entire human race inherited a sin nature from Adam. We sin because we're sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. We have a sin nature. It is our spiritual DNA. We were born with it. It's in our nature to sin because we were born in Adam. You've heard the old song, fish got to swim and birds got to fly, right? It's their nature to do that. It's human nature before Christ to sin. So Paul says, look, before Christ brought you back from the slave market of sin, redeemed you from the bondage of sin and set you free, sin was your master. You were its slave. You didn't have any choice but to sin. So when you look at people that are unsaved around the world, you see your family and friends and they behave badly. Why would you be surprised? They're enslaved. They are not free to do what is right because they don't have the power to do what's right. They're in bondage to sin. You have the Holy Spirit. You have God himself living in you. You have been redeemed and set free. So you go, I can choose not to sin. You can. They can't. We're frustrated with people that behave like sinners. They're going to behave like sinners. They're not redeemed. They are sinners and they're in bondage. So be aware that you too were once in bondage. And we have been set free by the grace of God. We are now free not to sin. So our accountability standard is even higher. God gave us Jesus Christ who took our sin, gave us His righteousness, gave the Holy Spirit, and we are free not to sin, which means if you sin now, it's because you choose to sin, not because you have to. We have freedom now to say no to sin because we have the power. We have a new nature, God's nature. We have Christ living inside us through the Holy Spirit. For the Christian. Sin does not bring us pleasure, it brings us guilt. It brings us pain. Because Christians have already said yes to Jesus, they now have his supernatural power to say no to sin. And Paul says, why would you go back into bondage again? Why would you go back to slavery again? You've been set free from sin. Paul is astonished that they would choose to go back from faith in Christ alone to trusting the elementary ABCs of, of human rule keeping. He calls them the elementary things. They're literally the one, two, threes, ABCs, pretty basic stuff. Paul says, look, the law didn't set you free from sin. You followed the law for generations and generations and generations, and you were still in bondage to it. It didn't change a thing. By the way, it's not saying the law is bad. It's just that the law doesn't change human nature. Right? If the law changed human nature, we'd be the most righteous nation on the planet. We only have millions and millions and millions of laws on the books, so we don't keep those. We don't keep the Big Ten, let alone the 100,000 other ones that we have at that point in time. So the Galatian believers are now going back into trusting the law. They're trusting these human customs and Jewish rituals and ceremonies as a way of being right with God. That should not surprise us. Satan will always try and undermine our faith in Christ by adulterating the gospel. Satan will always do one of two things. He's either going to add something to the gospel or he's going to take away something from the gospel. He's going to either add or subtract to it. Contemporary culture is not much on rule keeping. By the way, it's fascinating because when you read this and we, we read the Galatians and we read about the law, they're always trying to keep the law and you kind of go, you know, our culture is not much on law keeping. 
would you say? We're not much on rule keeping. I mean, we're kind of, you know, I do my own thing. We don't believe in this rigid rule keeping stuff. Today, there are no rules, except the rules I make for myself. There are many paths to God, you know, and I can choose my own way to get there. However, making your own rules is just as useless as following somebody else's rules. You know why? No one comes to God on their terms. None of us can say, I'm going to come to God in the way I want to come to God, and he's got to accept me because I said so. Everyone who comes to God comes to God on his terms, not our terms. Give an example. Um, Marin and Mia and I were in Baltimore <clears throat> last Sunday afternoon for our niece's wedding. Uh, last Sunday afternoon. And Monday, we hired a guide for a really fast all-day tour of Washington, D.C. I went by the White House. Of course, you've got to see the White House. And they have installed a second set of barriers. You can't not only get <laughs> up to the fence. You, there's a second fence that they've put on this side of the fence. And there's police officers and cars along there. So there's a double layer, and then there's 100 yards of lawn where they can take care of you if you decide to jump both fences. So you want to get into the White House, it is a major project, right? You've got to have prior application uh, 30, between 21 and three months out. You've got to have approval. You have to have a congressional pass. Your congressperson's got to give it okay. And then you've got multiple security checks. So getting into the White House is not on your terms. If you're going to get in the White House, you're going to get in the White House on their terms. By the way, the same thing's true for Buckingham Palace, if you think you want to try that. So if you can't even get in the White House on your terms, what makes us think we can get into heaven on our terms? Well, God will just, of course, throw open the doors for me because I'm so special. I don't think so, right? Jesus said, no one comes to the Father but by me, one way. Paul says, look, everything else is useless for salvation. Why are you trusting in that which will not set you free, but which that will bring you back into bondage again? Why would you go back to bondage? Verse 12, I beg of you, brethren, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You have done me no wrong. But you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Verse 15, where then is the sense of blessing you had? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. Here's the principle. Your greatest treasure is salvation. So thank Jesus every day that he saved even you. There's an old song, I am so glad that my Father in heaven tells of his love in the book he has given. Wonderful things in the Bible I see that Jesus loved even me. Paul is recounting his history with these false believers. He says, with these Christians, he says, look, the first time I preached to you, I was sick. I was ill. I wasn't doing well, and you did not reject me. We don't know what his illness was, but apparently it was physically repulsive. Right? But that didn't hinder them, that didn't bother them from accepting him or the gospel he preached. Matter of fact, these Galatians were so hungry for the gospel, they embraced him as a messenger of God, as an angel of the Lord, despite his physical appearance. They were hungry for the truth and the freedom that the gospel brought. 
Matter of fact, Paul says, you were so grateful to hear the gospel that you would have plucked out your own eyes for me. You would have sacrificed your own eyes. Now, that saying, plucked out your own eyes, is, it's an ancient expression in that era. It was a metaphor that really was used as a willingness to sacrifice everything for the benefit of something else. Meaning your eyes are the most valuable thing you had, sight. And if you're saying you'd pluck out your eyes, it says, look, I value you so much or I value what you bring, I'd trade my eyes for it. Right, your sight, which is which means that's the most priceless thing in the world you would have to give. So when they first heard the gospel, these Galatians regarded it as more valuable than their own eyesight. It was the highest priority for them. They viewed the gospel as an incomparable blessing. And Paul is stunned that only a couple of years later they're rejecting the gospel. They're rejecting the true gospel and, and going back to rule keeping, human rules and regulations and customs, and we look at them and we say, wow, how could you do that? <clears throat> and then we look in the mirror and we have the same tendencies ourselves. You know, when we first got saved, what'd you feel like? When you first knew that you were going to heaven, you didn't deserve to go to heaven, but you were going because of the grace of Jesus Christ, it Put a whole, you looked at the life through a whole new set of lenses. It was almost euphoric, life-changing. The problem becomes, after a while, that becomes normal. Yeah, I'm going to heaven. Yeah, Jesus died for my sins. Yep, you know, heaven is in my future, and I just got to put up with this mess down here for a few more years, and it becomes routine. And I go to church every Sunday, and it becomes what I do. I worked graveyards for a couple of years, 30, 40 years ago. And when I got back to church after a year of not being in church, I bawled like a baby. I didn't realize how precious it was to be with God's people. And we have a huge number of people that, ah, the, the lake, the coast, whatever it is, gotcha. There's nothing wrong with recreation. But if you're spending more time out there than you are here with God's people... You've taken it for granted. You don't know what you have. There are people around the world who would give their eyes, literally, to have a church to worship at like Valley Baptist every week and know that it's going to be there. Not everybody's going to be in jail next weekend at that point in time. So it's terribly easy to take for granted this enormous gift of God. We forget what life was like before Jesus because we've been blessed for so many decades of knowing Jesus. And when that's why it's good for us to be around people that are lost. They need Christ and it reminds us of what life was like and what our life could be like without Christ. The truth is knowing Jesus is our greatest treasure by far. Every earthly treasure you have in this life, it all has an expiration date. It's all going to the landfill. Heck, you and I are going to the landfill. We call it a cemetery, but I mean, that's where we're going, right? Yeah, I thought you'd get that. Jesus said in Matthew 6, he says, Lay up for yourselves treasures in your bank. Is that what he said? Lay up for yourselves where? Where should your treasures be located? In heaven. You know, on your deathbed, earthly treasures aren't going to mean a lot. Queen Elizabeth I uh, is reported to have said in her deathbed, Quote, all my possessions for a moment of time. 
Interesting. If that's true, it doesn't sound like she was looking forward to leaving this place to go to heaven. Just saying. So in salvation, Jesus reconciles us to God, makes it possible, amazingly possible for us to live together forever with God. If that doesn't blow your mind, you don't understand the nature of the problem. Your greatest treasure in heaven on earth is Jesus, and salvation is the greatest gift. Don't take it for granted. That should be the number one thing on your prayer list, on your thanksgiving list. Every time you pray is, thank you, Jesus, you saved me and reconciled my sin. Verse 16. So Paul told them this, and apparently they became offended. Verse 16. Paul says, so how have I become your enemy for telling you the truth? They, these false teachers, eagerly seek you. Not commendably, but they wish to shut you out so that you will seek them. But it's always good to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner, and not only when I am present with you. Here's the principle. Friends tell friends the gospel truth. Don't be fooled by the flattery of false teachers, even friendly false teachers. Friends, real friends, tell friends the gospel truth. Don't be fooled by the flattery of false teachers. So these false teachers, these Judaizers, are in the churches in Galatia, and they are flattering these Galatian believers and telling them how wonderful they are, and you can keep the law and be proud of it, and you'll get the praise of men. And Have you ever been flattered? Anybody ever flattered you? Anybody ever thought enough of you to lie to your face? Tell you stuff that wasn't true? And you went, oh, baby, pour it on me. Yes, that's so true. Yes, yes, yes. Flattery is always false praise. It's deceit and lies because deep down we know that when someone flatters us, they're saying things about us that we really don't deserve, right? However, our pride loves flattery. It really does. And Paul is a truth teller. And he tells the Galatians the truth, and they're rejecting him now because they like hearing the flattery of these false teachers that, of course, you can keep the law. Everybody's going to think you're really something when you do all these legal things. They're going to think you're holier than they are, etc., etc. So these false teachers are using flattery to try and isolate the Christians in Galatia from Paul. They don't want any other influence on these Galatian believers other than them. And of course, you look at this and you go, golly, Brad, that sounds like a cult. That's precisely correct. All false teachers fear the truth. And that's why the vast majority of cults try and isolate their followers from any other influence other than them. So if you ever attend a church of any kind and they want to isolate you from anybody but them, run, run, run. The Holy Spirit operates in many, many different settings in many, many different formats. The only thing you should be concerned about is, do they know Jesus and are they committed to the Word of God? Some cults obviously even live in communities, right? They try and quarantine their followers from following any other outside influence. And Paul says, look, they're flattering you for selfish, prideful reasons, and the truth is always transparent. I brought you the truth of the gospel. The truth is always transparent because you know something? The gospel does not flatter us, does it? 
The gospel tells us things about ourselves that we don't like to hear. The gospel shines the light of God's truth on our sin and our need for a Savior. And that's why some of your friends and acquaintances, when you bring them the gospel, are offended because it hurts their pride. Yeah? It tells the truth. We are sinners. And we do need a Savior. The gospel humbles human pride because it makes God the center and not us. False teachers always make humans the center. And, of course, they flatter people into believing the lie that they can make God better. How many of you have talked to people who said, you know, God's going to let me in heaven because I'm basically a good person? You ever heard that? Yeah. By what standard? Good compared to what? You know? The truth is, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's truth. Our pride didn't want to hear it, but that is truth. We're sinners. We have missed the mark. The truth is, all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, Isaiah 64. All our attempts to impress God with our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. The truth is, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. See, the gospel doesn't flatter our pride. The gospel makes God the sinner, and our proper response to that is one of humility. So these Galatian believers are being seduced by flattery. It flatters their pride, makes them feel good about their own good works. The problem is, false teachers always promise more than they can deliver. One of the most amazing lies in Scripture is the very first one told. What did Satan promise Eve? He said, he said to Eve, If you eat the forbidden fruit, you will become like God. And the way you become like God is by disobeying Him. Really? That's amazing. God said, don't eat the fruit. But if you do eat the fruit in direct disobedience, you'll become like Him. So you become like somebody by disobeying their will. It worked. He ate it. And by the way, I will guarantee you the fruit tasted great. But it didn't result in freedom. It resulted in slavery. These false teachers promise, if you do these works and you do X, Y, Z, whatever it is, fill in the blanks, you'll impress God. As a matter of fact, your good works will impress God more than the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross for you. God will be more impressed with your rule-keeping than he was with the death of his own son. Really? I don't think so. That's a lie. A man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Galatians 2.16 So not only are we saved by faith in Christ alone, it's also the only way we grow in Christ. Not just salvation by faith, but we live by faith and we mature by faith. And this is really one of the key verses in the Bible. Verse 19, My children with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. We're going to spend some time on this verse. Paul compares his work with the Galatians to a pregnant woman in labor who's on the verge of delivering a baby. 
Several years before, Paul has labored to bring them the gospel. He has preached the gospel. And these Galatians have responded to God's call. They've trusted in Christ's payment for their sin. The Spirit of Christ through the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in their lives. They've been born again. These are genuine Christians. However, instead of continuing to grow toward maturity, they seem to be returning back to childhood, spiritual childhood. They're following these, these false teachers who are hypnotizing them and bewitching them into believing that faith alone and Christ alone is not enough to have a right relationship with God. You need to earn it through works. Now, here's the big picture. We've talked about this before. The central problem of human existence is how sinful humanity can have a relationship with holy God. That is the central core issue of human existence. How can sinful humanity have a relationship with holy God? Here's the problem. God loves people, but he hates their sin. And he can't tolerate it, and he won't tolerate it. So for us, sinful humanity, to have a relationship with holy God, our sin that separates us from God has to be separated from us. Because you're not going to bring your sin into God's presence. If you want to hang on to your sin, you're not going to come into his presence. Because he's not going to tolerate sin. These false teachers said, you know, you can do enough good works to pay for your own sins. You can just do the right things and enough of the right things. God will be impressed enough with your works. He'll overlook the rest of your sin. Not true. The true gospel is that God sent Jesus to separate us from the penalty of our sins by paying for sins himself on the cross. I want to talk to you about the process of salvation or the biography of salvation. This is an interesting sequence of salvation. Jesus likens salvation to what? Being born again. Now, when you're born, it's not the end of your development. It's just the beginning of your development. Just as our physical birth should lead to increasing growth and maturity, so our spiritual birth should lead to increasing maturity as well. So these Galatians have been born again, but their spiritual development has stalled, right? They were born again by the power of God. Their new life came from Christ living in them. Now they're trying to grow in Christ by forsaking Christ and adopting human values and adding human rules to God's power. That's impossible to do. It's like trying to drain the Pacific Ocean with your sippy cup or, I guess, dig out the Grand Canyon with a toothpick or something. It's impossible. So as a Christian, let's talk about your spiritual biography, your spiritual history. Your spiritual history began in eternity past. The Bible says that God chose you, chose us, elected us when? Before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1.4. So there's four component parts to salvation. Election is the first one. Election is God's divine choice of you before time began, before creation. God sovereignly elected you to be saved before you were born, before he had created the heavens and the earth, when only thing in existence was God himself. And by the way, you had nothing to do with this process. Election is 100% God's doing. It occupied an instant of time. It wasn't a process. It was a proclamation. If you want to cross-reference this, write down Ephesians 1.4. Ephesians 1.4. He elected you before you were born. He chose you and wrote your name in the Lamb's book of life before you were born. 
That should bring us humility and gratitude, not pride. After God shows you, the second step in the process of salvation is justification. Election number one, justification number two. So the Holy Spirit, at some point in your life, called you to respond to the gospel, to place your faith in Jesus, to pay for the penalty for your sin. The moment you responded to that call by faith and obedience, God declares you right in his sight. Justification is when God, the judge, declares you not guilty. He declares you righteous. He declares you not guilty because he's already declared Christ guilty. Right? So justification is God declaring you not guilty. That occurs at the moment you place faith in Jesus Christ. So God took your sin and put it on Jesus when he died in your place on the cross. At the same time, God took Jesus' righteousness, his perfect righteousness, which he earned by perfectly keeping the law, and he put it in your account. I want you to think of an accounting term. How many of you are familiar with assets and liabilities? Assets are good things, liabilities are bad things, right? Assets are what you own, debts are what you owe. So God took the unpayable debt of our sin and he put it on Jesus and said, you're going to pay their debt. And he took the righteousness of Jesus, the perfect righteousness, and he put that in your account. So you and I inherited his assets and he took our spiritual debts. Now, that's the greatest asset transfer in the history of the universe. Now, when God sees you, he only sees Jesus' righteousness because Jesus took your sin and paid for it on the cross. Just Election is when God chose you from before the foundations of the earth. Justification is at the moment you place faith in Christ, God the judge said, not guilty. That doesn't mean you're sin-free. It just means you're no longer guilty because your guilt and your sin have been paid for by Jesus. The fourth step in your salvation experience is called glorification. Glorification is going to happen when you leave here. And we all have a departure date. It's already preset, down to this nanosecond. When God takes us from this life through death to be in his presence for all eternity, to be absent from the body, to be home with the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5, 8, that's called glorification. That's when you enter glory. And that's God's work. So in the past, God elected us and God justified us. In the future, where he glorified us. Now, today, on earth, in the here and now on planet earth, it's all about the third step, which is called sanctification. So you're going to have election, justification, sanctification, glorification. I know those are big words. Hang with me. Sanctification is what you and I are supposed to be about between today and the day God takes us home. That's what this life on planet Earth is all about. And sanctify means to be separated. It's a process of continual separation from sin and separation to God. I don't know if you know this, but God expects you to become progressively less sinful every day. He expects you to become progressively more holy every day. A related word to sanctification is consecration. Consecration means to be set apart, to set apart for exclusive use. Those of you who are in the service this morning, if you weren't, you need to go. I don't care if you're not married, go anyway. It's a great message. Sex is consecrated for what? 
Marriage, it's set apart for the exclusive use of marriage. Food is consecrated for the stomach. It's designed to be utilized by the stomach. Christians are consecrated to God. We are set apart for God's use, right? His exclusive use. We know we're not our own because we've been bought with a price. So every day, the Holy Spirit's at work in your life, and He's got one objective— to separate you from sin progressively more and more every day. We should be sinning less today than we did yesterday. We should be walking closer with Jesus today than we did yesterday. This is the process of becoming more and more like Jesus, becoming more and more holy, becoming less and less sinful and more and more righteous. You were not saved to sit you were saved because God wants you more and more like Him. More and more pure, more and more holy, less and less sinful. Let me give you an example. We have a community well in our neighborhood, and it produces a lot of sulfur. And I don't know if you've been around sulfur, it's kind of like rotten eggs. And when it's in your water, it just, you know, really makes you want to drink something else. So we installed a water filtration system that filter out their impurities in the water and to separate out the, the impurities I hate from the water I love. So I need to filter out what I hate in order to enjoy what I love. You really have no idea what you're drinking until you filter it. And then when you look at the filter after a week or two, you look and you go, whoa, that stuff's been going into my body, right, when you filter it. It's actually fascinating or intriguing or whatever John will tell me to say next. You actually see the impurities. Here's the point. The finer the filters, the more impurities get filtered out and the cleaner the water. God wants to filter sin from your life. And as you mature, he will put finer and finer filters in your life to make you more like him. God has lots of filtration systems. God gave us a conscience, right? God gave us the Bible to reveal the truth. God gave us his Holy Spirit to point out when we're not living according to the truth. God gave us brothers and sisters who will help us walk the walk. So God gives us filtration systems, and he does this to sanctify us, to separate us from sin, and to purify us. But this sanctification process, this becoming less sinful and more and more holy, it's a lifelong process. It's not instant, and it will take the rest of your life, and it requires you and I cooperating with God. Here's the principle. Becoming more like Jesus every day is God's purpose for the rest of your life. You want to know what your master purpose is? Becoming more like Jesus is God's purpose for the rest of your life. The end point of this sanctification process, this becoming holy, is to be like Christ. Paul says, look, I've been laboring over you Galatian believers so that you'll become like Christ, just like an embryo being formed in mother's womb. 
It means that you and I today should be looking act, looking like and thinking like and acting more and more and more like Jesus every day. Now, like these Galatian believers, you and I are saved. We're going to heaven if you know Jesus Christ is your Savior. However, in all of our lives, there is a gap. There is a gap between our character and conduct and Christ's character and conduct. Would you say that's true? Say yes. In many of our lives, Brad being number one, there's many times a Grand Canyon-sized gap between my attitudes and actions and Jesus' attitudes and actions. And God's goal for your life and my life is that every day there is less and less distinction between our attitudes and actions and Jesus' attitudes and actions. You've all read the, read the book or heard of it, What Would Jesus Do? That's not a bad start. Just remember that you can't do what Jesus did unless he's inside you, giving you the power to do that. So when people see us, who should they see? They should see Jesus. There's an old song, probably 30, 40 years old, and it likens Christians to mirrors and windows. Christians are like mirrors and windows, and both windows and mirrors need to be clean in order to do their job. As mirrors, we should accurately reflect what? The image of Jesus to the world. They should see Jesus in that image, right, in the mirror. And as windows, we should be transparent to let the light of Jesus shine into a dark world. And if you have a dirty window, are people going to see Jesus or are they going to see the dirt? They'll probably see the dirt. And you say, well, Brad, how? Uh, this business about becoming less and less sinful, I don't know about that. That's God's plan for your life, that you will become more and more like Jesus every single day. Romans 8, 29. We all know Romans 8, 28, right? And God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. What's his purpose for those who are called. Verse 29. That's his purpose for every one of our lives. And those he foreknew, election, he predestined to become conformed to what? The image of his son, the likeness of his son, that Jesus Christ might become the firstborn among many brethren. So the character and conduct of Christ is the model. It's the mold that we are to conform to. How many of you have ever uh, baked a cake? How many of you have ever made jello? Jello is pretty easy, right? And you pour it into what? A mold, a pan, a shape, or something. And lo and behold, that cake batter, it conforms right to the shape of that cake pan, doesn't it? How are we doing on conforming to the shape of Jesus? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, Romans 8. So if our life's goal is to become more and more like Jesus, if Jesus is our model, if Jesus is our prototype, exactly what does that look like? Well, 1 Peter 1 tells us, here's our standard, and quite frankly, it's terrifying. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy 
in all that you do. It's that all word that just tears me up. Be holy in all you do, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. So holiness is nothing less than conformity to the character and conduct of God. You and I should be behaving, thinking, talking like Jesus more and more every day. God is holy. There's no evil in him whatsoever. And because God is holy, he hates my sin and he cannot tolerate it in his presence. And that's why he commands us in Hebrews 12, 14. What are you going to do about this? He says, pursue holiness. That's a lifelong, diligent quest to become more and more like Jesus, without which no one will see the Lord. So you and I are commanded to pursue holiness, which is another word for Christ-likeness. We are called to become more and more holy every day, and I want you to know that it's, it's completely impossible to do that in your own strength. How many of you have ever tried not to sin? It's a waste of time, right? In your own strength, it's impossible. We've been already saved from the penalty of sin when Jesus died for us on the cross. When we die and go to heaven, we'll be saved from the presence of sin. There's no sin in heaven. In between now and then, while we live on earth, we're supposed to become progressively free from the power of sin because we have the greater power of God. Here's the problem. When you became a Christian, you received a new nature. You received the Holy Spirit who lives in you and gives you supernatural power to obey God. But does that mean your problems are over? No, because you still have what? Your old sin nature that you got from Adam that you didn't ask for. You just inherited. You're part of the human race. We still have our old sin nature. How many of you still have old sinful habits? Yep, I got them. I fight them every day. And we live on a sinful planet. Yes? And the sinful planet is populated by slaves of Satan. And these slaves of Satan on this sinful planet are at war with God. So we're in hostile territory. We have these sinful habits in our past. And we have the old nature, the old DNA that still gets called the sin. So that's called warfare. Between the spirit and the flesh. Between our new nature in Christ and the old nature that we got from Adam. That's why this warfare occurs and why you and I understand that becoming more like Jesus and becoming more like holy means warfare until we get to heaven. But we do have help. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, we're in the flesh. We have a supernatural life, but we're living it here in flesh and bone. I live by faith in the Son of God and loved me and gave himself up for me. So we must depend on the power of God and the indwelling Holy Spirit to guide and direct us. The Holy Spirit makes his home in our heart. He gives us a supernatural life of Christ, but we still have to cooperate with God. Your holiness, your Christ-likeness, you already have the power to do it. You have the Holy Spirit, you have the Word of God, you have the means of grace, you have prayer, you've got fellowship. God has already given us everything we need to have in order to grow into Christ-likeness. 
I'm going to tell you something I didn't like to say. Your intimacy with Jesus, you have exactly what you choose. You are as close to God <coughs> right now as you want to be. He doesn't move away from you. He's consistent. We have as much relationship with Jesus as we want. We choose. Many, many people want God only close enough to solve the problems that they create, but not close enough to prevent them by telling us what to do. Amen? If you want to be like Christ, then you have to spend time with Him. If you want to know your spouse or your friends or your children or anybody, you have to spend time with them. Amen? Make it your priority, your top priority, to spend time alone with Jesus every day. He's given us the Word of God. He's told us, He's written us a very extensive love letter. When you read the Bible and you pray and you ask God to open your eyes that you would see what He wants you to see. And He does. How many of you ever read the Bible and a verse just jumped out at you? That's the Holy Spirit. That's a supernatural miracle. The Holy Spirit opened your eyes and went... Boom! That little explosion, that's for you. That's called conviction. You go, oh man, I need to start doing this. This, I'm, I'm in sin here. I need to make some changes. Or you need encouragement. And a verse just jumps out at you and it's like God just wraps his arm around you and says, this one's for you. you. You need this, TLC, from me. That's the Holy Spirit of God speaking to you and now you have a choice. Either you're going to obey it or you're not going to obey it. Either you're going to believe what God said or you're not going to believe what God said. God loves us and wants far more intimacy with us than we want with Him. So God works from the inside out through His Word, through His Spirit, but He also works from the outside in through circumstances. They asked Michelangelo <clears throat> how he managed to carve the David, that 17-foot-high sculpture of David in Florence right there in the rotunda. And he said, simple, all I did was to remove everything that wasn't David. Wow. You got to know what David looks like before you start removing what's not David, right? God arranges our external life to remove anything that's not like Jesus. And you've ever been carved on by the Holy Spirit? Some of you are in the process of being carved right now. Because God is removing things from your life that He doesn't want there. A lot of those things we like. A lot of those things we're comfortable with. God says, they're not Jesus. I need to take them away. Are you willing? God's purpose in every circumstance is to shape us more like Jesus. Every single circumstance you have is custom designed by God to make you more like Jesus. There is no circumstance in your life, there is no experience in your life or in my life that is not designed by God for one purpose, 
to make us more like Jesus. So I got a question for you. Am I willing to cooperate with God as he uses each circumstance to make me more like Jesus? By the way, for the Christian, there's no accident. You can't say, well, this circumstance, God would just want a vacation. It just happened. No, he never goes on vacation. He loves you. He's our Heavenly Father. He designs every circumstance to shape us more like Jesus. So the question is, when those circumstances happen, whatever they are, and they could be people, they could be financial, they could be health, they could be job, they, whatever the circumstances are, whatever our experiences are, they could be rejection by our children, by our loved ones. God's purpose in that experience, that circumstance, is to shape us more like Jesus. Are we willing? Are we willing to say, Lord, I don't even understand this experience. I don't even understand this circumstance. Open my eyes to show me what it is you want to teach me, how you want to use this to shape me. And you know what God will say? Read this. I got answers for you every day. This is your food. This is your life. This is your nutrition. This is me talking with you. And the Holy Spirit will bring a verse to mind, and you go, that's it. That's why the Word of God is so precious and so powerful. Becoming more like Jesus is a joint venture between sovereign God and obedient people. And holiness, becoming like Jesus, requires our discipline, but it also is motivated by our devotion. The core motivation to become like Jesus is real simple. It's love. It's love. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. Have you ever noticed when you love someone, serving them is easy? I didn't say you liked it. But obedience to the king always brings peace, even when it's hard. And why do we love him? We love him because he first loved us. Anytime we struggle with becoming like Christ, anytime we struggle with hanging on to the stuff, our selfishness, we just need to look at the cross. And we need to look at his sacrifice. Christ-likeness, becoming like Jesus, is a lifelong marathon. Paul said what? Philippians 3.14, I press on toward the goal or the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. He said, I'm forgetting what lies behind, forgetting all my failures that lies behind. I reach forward to become like Christ. That was his lifelong passion. He never lost sight of that. And in our culture, our wealthy culture with all its distractions, it is so easy to lose track of why we're here. Why we're here. Let's review. Christ set us free from sin so we could have a relationship with God. Don't go back into slavery again. The converse of that is, since Christ set you free to have a relationship with God, your greatest treasure is salvation. Value it. Prize it. Be grateful for it. Thank Jesus every day that he saved even you. 
Friends tell friends the gospel truth. Don't be fooled by the flattery of false teachers, even ones that wear suits and ties. Becoming more like Jesus every day is God's purpose for the rest of your life. And then lastly, as we journey through this adventure with Christ, am I willing to cooperate with God as He uses each circumstance to make me more like Jesus? One of the things you can count on, our God loves us, and His love is relentless. He will never give up shaping you in the image of Christ, ever. And that should give us comfort because he loves us beyond what makes us feel good today. He wants us to feel good for eternity, and that's his passion. I'm going to pray for us, and then I'm going to ask Tom to come up. Father, your love is amazing. And at the same time, it's terrifying. You love us beyond what we can comprehend. And Father, your passion is to make us like your Son, perfect and holy and loving and free from sin. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would give us a hatred for sin, a hatred for sin in our own heart, that you would shine the mirror of your truth, your love and your truth, and show us the cancer that we're hanging on to and the sins that we have become comfortable with, but that are preventing us from becoming like you. Jesus, fan the flames of love in our heart. Give us a desire to know you and to love you and to honor you. And thank you that you saved even us and that you have eternal plans for us beyond our understanding. Lord, give us a heart to cooperate and to say yes, Lord, yes, to your will and to your way. Amen. I love you guys. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.